Hold the Line with Mike Solon is sponsored by Heart to Heart Medical Supply. Heart to Heart is an American company offering FDA-registered respirator masks at the lowest prices. Heart to Heart offers free, same-day shipping, and by using the promo code HOLD20 at checkout, you can save 20% off your entire order. Visit hearttoheart.com. That's H-A-R-T, the number two, H-A-R-T, dot com. Hearttoheart.com. I had absolutely nothing to live for. Nothing. After all I accomplished, it was all gone. And I want to tell you this. I, I was going over methods of taking my life, and one of them was suicide by cop. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. This is where we hold them. This is where we fight. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish. Not a fight. Hold the line. Hey, welcome back to Hold the Line with Mike Solon. Today in studio, I have a very special guest. Somebody that I look up to and I think our Seattle community looks up to as being a leader in this city. One who is engaged in activism that is reasonable and that cares about this city's moving forward, who is profound in basketball and in the city politics, and he's in a number of uh, civil-minded endeavors, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that he will speak to. But without further ado, I have the distinct honor to welcome in studio former Seattle supersonic and NBA legend and Seattle leader, James Donaldson. Hey, Mike. Hey. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to see you today. It's just so thank you for having me on. Well, it's my pleasure to have you on. Yeah. And this is the second time we've, meet, we've met in person. That's right. That's right. You want to describe the first time we uh, actually ta- uh, spoke with one another? Well, during this past summer, summer 2020, uh, downtown Seattle on the steps of City Hall, there was a big, big rally, a very well-attended rally to uh, stop the defunding of the police rally. I'm not sure what the official name was, yeah. but that's along those lines. So we were there, uh, several, several hundred, maybe a couple thousand people. Uh, and it was just a fantastic event. Uh, I uh, approached you and asked you if I can get on the mic and just say a few words to the crowd because I was really moved by... First of all, the, the, the interest in what we were trying to get accomplished, you know, stop this defunding push. So many people came out and they were really behind the cause. They really wanted to be part of that. And I knew that a lot of them would know me from my 40 years in Seattle, my old Seattle supersonic days. And true enough, so many of them did. I mean, even before I got on the mic, they were calling my name out, walking through the crowd and all this. And so that's how we met. And you gave me four, five, six minutes to get on the mic and just kind of say what I wanted to say. Uh, I encouraged them all to hang in there. Uh, you know, we don't want to defund the police. That's the last thing we want to do. Uh, our city elected officials really need to pay attention and get their heads out of the sand and to start to realize that this is a bad idea to defund the police. So I think we got that message across. I was wishing and hoping we did many more rallies during the summer. 
But that first one is something that's going to remain in my memory bank forevermore. Well, that's good. And I see the smile on your face yeah, and it's yeah. authentic. And you're, I just see it in your eyes. Yes. And when I met you that yeah. day, I mean, I, I, I had a lot going on. You did. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it was, a, it was the, well, I think it, it might've been August 9th. If I, my memory uh, serves me well. Yeah. It was hot. Yes. And you know, I was obviously stressed because I had black block across the street that were threatening to oh, shut yeah. us down. But I, I got to tell you, yeah. just having you there yeah. with the crowd, I mm, mean, mm. they recognized you immediately. And yeah, I think it just, yeah. it just gave a shot of adrenaline to that crowd to say, okay. That's right. That's this, right. This is, this is serious because there's somebody who's engaged in the community that has sure. had interest in yeah. Seattle being viable for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. You were there. Absolutely. And it, it took off like wildfire on, on the Twitter feeds and all the rest of this. Uh, people retweeting it all over the place. It, it stayed alive all summer long. We yeah. just kept it going. It was about 3,500 people. Oh, and that's what we estimated. And amazing. I don't think we've ever had any kind of law enforcement or public safety yeah. rally with that kind of turnout on the fantastic, steps of city hall. Fantastic. Fantastic. Right. No. So yeah. it was our pleasure to have you on. Thank you. And um, to have you there and then, and then, and more importantly, I think um, your message to the people there mm-hmm. was was already, I think, yeah. just a common sense approach with Seattle's issues, but policing issues in terms of public yeah. safety that I think impacts not just the populace here, right. but nationwide. That's right. And when we look to defund major urban area police departments, mm-hmm. to me... That's a breakdown of everybody's public safety, regardless of politics. Yes. What are your thoughts on just the defund movement and how, if if it's not, you've already said it's it's not something we want to do. But why right. is that so profoundly negative for our community? Well, because whether it's, whether it's defund or reallocate or whatever term you want to use to uh, take away a lot of the responsibilities from our police officers and put them on to other folks who aren't skilled in policing is a bad idea. Uh, It's been shown throughout history, people cannot police themselves. They think they can. And it just never turns out well, because sooner or later you get these factions, you get these turf wars, you get these gangs and everything else that pop up who start commanding the rule of law. And that's the way it's going to be. So you have to have authority figures, law enforcement, who take a sworn duty, uh, sworn oath of office to protect and serve. And I firmly believe that the vast, vast, vast majority of all law enforcement folks are great people, really, really good people. Of course, you're going to have a bad person or two here or there, but that's in every profession, every, every stripe of life. You're going to have that. Uh, police are tasked with the additional responsibility of, okay, they have the power with their armaments and everything else to possibly take a life if it comes down to that. That's the last thing any of us want to do. That's the last thing the police want to do. They are trying to de-escalate the situation, evaluate the situation, and to get on top of this to bring law and order into our communities, which all of us appreciate. Everybody appreciates a good uh, policed neighborhood, a safe place to raise our children, and a safe city to live in. That's, That's all we're trying to get accomplished. It's well said, and I think what we need to do is just give the audience and the listenership and the viewership mm-hmm. a little bit more of who you are, because it's obviously, yeah. I've been in Seattle for about 21 years, just for the job only, thanks yeah. to the city of uh, hiring me on. <laughs> I'm sure the activists are not wanting that to happen right now, but that's besides the point. So yeah. you 
I've been here for 40 years. Yes, yes. And you've been in a 20-year professional basketball player. Oh, yeah. You're with the Sonics. Yeah. You're with the Utah Jazz. That's right. You were with, who else? I'm going through the list here. Uh, Mavericks and the New York Knicks. That's right. So walk with me. How does professional basketball, how has that guided your life to be in the position you're in now where you're so engaged in the community you call home? Yeah. How does becoming a professional athlete, how does that, how is that structured in your mind to lead your life currently post professional mm-hmm. basketball? Yeah, I, I think I think sports really gave me uh, the structure to live my life within. Um, now, going way back <clears throat> before I even got involved with uh, sports, I come from a you know a, a, a family that was you know middle lower middle class income. My dad was a 20, 20 year Air Force officer. United States Air Force, a 20-year Postal Service person as well. And he was always one about discipline. I mean, you know, he did his job. He stayed there throughout our growing up years. He made sure he had a roof over our head, our chores were done, our homework was done. Discipline, discipline, it was drilled into me from an early age. And then I go away to play basketball at Washington State University, and I get another disciplinarian in my life, uh, Coach George Raveling. The very, very same way. There was kind of a, a handoff of the baton. It's like, okay, now you take him. And that was probably the best thing for me because I grew up in those kind of environments where discipline and structure were the two keys to me uh, maturing and growing up to who I am today. Uh, after those four years at WSU, I went and joined the Seattle Supersonics and Lindy Wilkins, uh, the coach there. So were you dra- <coughs> interrupt a few times while I had to uh, yes. get my train of thought. So were you drafted into the NBA? Yes, I was drafted by the Sonics the year they won their NBA championship, 1979. Now, I wasn't quite good enough to join a team then, so I did a detour and went to Italy and played in Italy for one year and honing my skills, playing, 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 getting better and better came back the next year and made the Sonic team as their draft pick the next year. That's fantastic. Yeah, so my first three NBA years were with the Seattle Supersonics, and Seattle became home. Uh, Before then, I knew nothing about the Northwest other than Pullman, Washington. Sure. Which isn't the best (laughs) representation of our Northwest, but it's a great, great place to be. I grew up in Sacramento, California, and not knowing anything about the Pacific Northwest, never being up this way until I got away from high school and went to college, I fell in love with the Pacific Northwest. I fell in love with Seattle, and I've been here ever since for 40 years. It's a beautiful place to live. It's one of the most uh, most beautiful cities, and I've traveled the world. I've been in all the major cities around the world. All of them have their pros and their cons, their beautiful aspects and everything. Seattle is the one that I keep coming back home to because it has everything that might be lacking in some other great cities of the world. Seattle has it all right here. Yeah. You know, there wasn't long ago that Seattle was was perceived as the crown jewel of the Pacific Northwest. Remember that? Absolutely. The Emerald City. The Emerald City. No one says that anymore. No one says that about Seattle anymore. It's really taken a dive downhill the last 15 years, maybe, or so, 10, 15 years, where we just have gotten away from our our essence of who we really are. Great people who work hard, who are, for the most part, very trustworthy and very honest, very open and candid. Uh, I thought we get along so well here in Seattle, for the most part. We haven't had a lot of social issues throughout the years that I've been here that have broken down the social fabric and the social barriers. 
that we're facing nowadays. And it's really kind of difficult to see this. I think it's a good way to put it is that breaking down the social barriers. Yes. It almost appears as if there's no more barriers. Well, you know, without, when they call them guardrails, without guardrails, you go all over the place. And, and I think nowadays with um, uh, the lack of consequences for actions that used to be pretty detrimental to other people or society in general, uh, the lack of consequences has really gotten people into a mindset that, hey, I can go do what I want to do, not just get a little slap on the hand maybe, and be okay. So taking responsibility for your actions, right? Is it just an individual as a human being? You have to, and that's exactly how I grew up. Okay, and it probably, and I want to put words in your mouth, but when we talk about professional basketball, the mindset, what it takes to get there, obviously yeah. you have to have the physical prowess. Yes. But the mental side of things, and we'll get into this because you're into the mental mm-hmm. psyche, if you will, with some of the things that you're doing. Yeah. Um, it almost appears as if you don't have the mental ability to take accountability for your actions to to own a mistake because you uh, you know well that if you make a mistake on the court yeah and your teammates suffer from that the mm-hmm. team suffers the community mm-hmm. suffers because your team is not doing well Absolutely. you have to own that yeah and so i think that's tied into just direct ownership of just people not taking accountability for their actions here when we have a yeah. breakdown in our society and especially in seattle due mm-hmm. to politics yeah exactly <clears throat> excuse me you know we we've raised a, a generation of younger folks who, uh, when they were growing up, everyone got a trophy. There were no more winners and losers. Uh, if a, a, a peewee baseball game got out of hand by 15 runs ahead by the other team, they'd call the game. Okay, everybody, stop. That's enough. Here's a trophy for everybody. And so people haven't really been able to learn uh, the lessons of winning and the lessons of losing. There's lessons in both of these things. You can't get too high after a win, and you can't be devastated because you lose. This is life. Uh, But a lot of our younger people are not learning those lessons anymore through sports, through civic engagement. Uh, There are no more civic classes in junior high and high school to teach kids about uh, our fundamental, elemental pieces of our democracy that we have. Kids don't learn this anymore. And so they grow up with a sense of, wow, it's all about me, me, me. I can do what I want to do, and nobody's going to tell me anything differently. And that makes for a very, very difficult society that we live in, we find ourselves living in right now. Yeah, and it seems to be devolving a little bit more, and it's a sad state of affairs. And we talked about Seattle being so... Yeah. I think so vibrant for over the time that you, you've been mm-hmm. here but lately. And you said in the past 15 years, yes, you've seen just a moral decay. Is that a good way of saying it? A mor- moral decay, if you will, um, with people not taking accountability for their actions and just the, yeah, I don't know if I want to go back that far. 15, maybe the last 10 years or so. Yeah, I would, I would agree because yeah. I, I've seen it the last seven ish. Okay. Okay. Uh, since the great recession. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we recovered from the great recession here in Seattle. You know? Now it appears as if we're, at least socially, we're yeah. having a tough time. And I think some of that starts with obviously public safety issues. And yes. we mentioned Stop to Funding right. at the rally that we did, stoptofunding.com, which is still going over 200,000 signatures. Great. Still, that petition is still going strong. Mm, keep it going. Keep it going. Because I think if we don't have public safety for the protection of everybody in our city, yeah then we're in deep, deep trouble. That's right. Right? That's right. And That's then right. We, we will devolve into some sort of lawlessness, but yeah. critics would say that that is almost alarmist talk. Yeah. Is it alarmist talk? Because it's, it, it appears when you drive around, especially in the Soto area of this building, yeah, 
and I live in West Seattle. Okay. In the areas that I drive through, I see the breakdown in society, yeah. people not taking accountability for their actions. Do you see that as well as far as being so profoundly disturbing yeah. for our way of life? It's a sad it's a sad state that we are in currently. Uh, you know, I'm on quite a few of these uh, news feeds or these uh, online neighborhood chats and things, and it goes all day long. People are, you know, pointing out a suspicious-looking person over here, someone taking packages off the porch over there. This is the world we live in, and there, there are no repercussions for any of those actions anymore. And then I don't know who these people are, but the neighbors are definitely afraid of this, and they are letting people know that, hey, we have to be on our, on our guard. Uh, and... Now we're getting to a point where some of our city council members don't want to don't want to criminalize anything. Almost anything goes, you know. Uh, so if it's a misdemeanor or a a, a kind of mid level crime, mm-hmm. what's what's the cost for doing that? Yeah, there's no recourse, right? There is none, and and that's a scary place that we are heading quickly, quickly. Yeah, and and, and I agree with you. Yeah, and I think the problem is is that. I don't think it's reached the level of where that type of reality has yet to visit the majority of people's doorsteps, Mm -hmm. right? People Mm -hmm. are still at least somewhat safe in their dwellings, right? Yes. But if we continue down this path, and I'm speaking to you as just a public safety professional for 21 years, I'm immersed in this. This is my profession. Yeah. This will get worse, and it will visit people's doorstep, mm-hmm. and that's my concern. I mean, I live in this city, yeah, right, too. and I'm yeah. worried about property values. Yes, but as 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 you've pointed out, I've pointed out, and I think the reasonable community in Seattle have pointed out, mm-hmm. there are people fleeing this city because of this public safety crisis we're yeah. in. Yeah, that's right? right. And you mentioned the council; mm-hmm. their actions are, I think, assisting that decay. That's and right, I, and I understand for what purpose. What is that going to do? I don't know. I don't understand why on the campaign trail they may say something, and once they get in the office, they flip it around and and go uh, another direction. Uh, You know, one thing, they're not being true to the people who elected them to that seat on the council. Um, But ultimately, it's the voters, it's the electorate that has the power to vote people in or vote people out of office. And that's what we really need to encourage all of our Seattle population base of elected or uh, registered voters, you have the power. Utilize your power. Uh, Understand who these candidates are. We're lacking leadership. We're lacking political will to make a difficult decision. Uh, So often we kick the can down the road and we are reluctant to go back and visit it. We just want to kick it down the road. That doesn't solve anything. That's not leadership. I think... Your message is resonating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, because you know what, because yeah. because I think it's it, number one, it's authentic. Yeah, but it's a common sense, reasonable approach. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it, and it doesn't appear that, to your point, that our current elected officials are listening to that reasonable community in our city. No. When you have only twenty four percent of our population participate mm-hmm. in the past election. Yeah. We're gonna get what we get, and that's who we have yeah. in office. To mm-hmm. in. You're absolutely right. When we had our public safety um, debate prior to that election, a little bit over a year ago, three of the current city council members, one running on a re-election platform, Mm -hmm. ran on more funding Mm -hmm. 
more police officers uh-huh. to the city. <laughs> That's right. And then here we are a year later. Yeah. They're making moves to decriminalize certain misdemeanors, Inc- about 100 of them. Incredible. Yeah. And then to defund us and then lay people off. That's right. By the, by the color of their skin. Yes. Yes. Which is... I, I, I don't... Where do we go from here? I mean, this is that slippery slope I talk about yeah. that, that we are all on, and it's only going to continue getting worse and worse, slipperier and slipperier. Now, I don't know if, if your audience knows, I ran for uh, the office of city council last year, District 7, uh, in 2019. Um, Andrew Lewis ended up winning the seat. Uh, I was on the campaign trail with Andrew Lewis, and he's talking about, you know, we need more law enforcement, we need more funding, we need more prosecution to the prosecutor's attorney office. So public safety message. Yes. Right? He, he was saying all the right things. And then he gets in there and he votes exactly the other way. What, what is this all about? I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have my beliefs on it. It seems just well, they, they tend to... I guess, move in the direction of the political winds that will keep them in elected position because they're seeing what happened, obviously, a tragedy in Minneapolis yeah. right, with George Floyd. Sure, sure, sure. No reasonable cop that I know think that that's yeah. what happened to that individual that's right. was appropriate. No. I mean, I, I've never heard one. I haven't heard a person say that. But the problem is, is that I think policing by itself, yeah. public safety, yeah. is being used for political purposes, either for political gain or opportunity for a power shift, what have you. The problem is, is that I feel as if we're being used and we're being painted with a broad brush to say that we're racist. Mm, but indeed, mm. that is so profoundly disingenuous and yeah. flat out wrong yeah. that to me, I think our current elected officials feel that energy behind the activist, the loud activist movement to claim this, that they're going to get behind that because they feel as that that will keep them in political power. And that's such a false narrative that we need courageous people yeah. to yeah. help our community understand the reality that's not the case. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's where our leaders are falling short, uh, dra- dramatically short of where they need to be. Uh, true leadership is taking a stand, having a conviction, being able to message what your message is all about, and being able to make a difficult decision and stand with that, you know? If you make a mistake, come out and say you made a mistake. Uh, people are very forgiving. They'll forgive that. Yeah, I think you're right. And mm-hmm. uh, 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 the problem, though, yeah. is when you have people that take that stand, that want to run for office, that have run for office, the people that want to overthrow the system, that mm-hmm. claim the system is racist, not just policing, right. um, they're the ones being targeted because they're not extreme enough. Yeah. You know, when we came in here, you and I had a conversation in the hallway. Yeah. We talked about, the, I guess, the, the tragic incident of the uh, the mayor of Portland. Yes. Who yes. was sitting at a restaurant, I believe, dining with a significant other, whomever that was, That's by right. themselves. That's right. Enjoying the freedom that America provides. Wow. And he gets punched in the face. Incredible. For political purposes. Yeah. Because they want to completely tear down the system and yeah. put somebody in place that they feel pushes their activist narrative so i mean i would say that with that type of level that with that type of scrutiny with yeah. that reality that we're facing with that we're all faced with um how do we get people to have the courage to run for political office with the notion yeah. that they could be targeted in their personal homes or targeted when they're out in the public 
in a private moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very difficult to do. How do you convince people to, hey, in order to right the ship here, yeah. we need you, but this is what you have to be exposed to. And that's unfortunate. Uh, I don't know how you prepare a person for that kind of environment they're going to go into. You know, being, being a former professional athlete, my life has always been a, in a public sphere. I mean, I'm... I'm Bigger than life, you know. I can't. Yeah. I can't hide. You are bigger than life. You're <laughs> almost ten feet tall. That's, that's right. <laughs> I, I can't hide. So everywhere I go, you know, I mean, people come up. Most, uh, luckily, ninety nine point nine percent are very, very kind and courteous and respectful. You always get that one crazy one that wants to provoke something. Sure. So I, I've dealt with that for 30, 40 years. That's just been my life. Um, but most people don't get a chance to experience that going into public office. Uh, they think everything's going to be great. They got a nice office and a high-rise staff and everything else, you know, and they just sit back there and don't do much. But, uh, you know, I've always been a person of the people, and I just love being around my, my, my neighbors, my city, uh, a humanitarian at heart. You know, I've traveled the world. I've done a lot of things, and... You know, all these great countries. I keep coming back to Seattle because Seattle is home. And I look at all the great things Seattle is all about, has always been about. And I keep saying, wow, uh, we can get Seattle back to where she used to be. It's going to take some effort and some work. But I want Seattle to be called the crown jewel of the Pacific Northwest again. Yeah, and then when we see, and uh, I think fact checkers can can do the work here but the last time i heard mm-hmm. and read there's about 250 businesses that have closed shop mm-hmm. in the city of seattle that's right that to me is concerning yes not yes. just for the vibrant economic well-being of this city that's right but more importantly the reputation mm. of this great city that that's once right. was vibrant that's right that's right how do we get how do we get them back you know, our elected officials, again, have to message that and reach out to those folks and encourage them to come back, uh, maybe with some incentives, maybe with some ideal of, uh, of, of protectionism. Um, you know, I was a business, small business owner for 28 years myself with a physical therapy clinic business, and we had locations in the central area of Seattle, right on 22nd and Jackson. We were right there for seven or eight years. Uh, I purposely put a location there. I wanted to serve our black community, our our disadvantaged communities, our overlooked communities. I wanted to have a professional service right there where people from the community can say, wow, James is hiring from the community. He's opened his business to the community and have the people come in. I did a similar location up on the hilltop in Tacoma, right on uh, 11th and MLK, right up on the top of the hilltop and was there for seven or eight years. Same kind of thing. Neither one of these businesses really made much money. Matter of fact, it cost us money, but we were able to have other locations that would generate more revenue to offset To that. make it up. But this was my personal desire, to give back to our community, to show uh, leadership, to show role modeling of what is possible if we you know, keep pushing ourselves to be the best that we can be and get the opportunity to set up our own shop elsewhere. Yeah. And I think that basically goes into your whole entire life, your mindset. We mm-hmm. got to mindset earlier yes. with how uh, you became a professional athlete. Yeah. And uh, you've continued that mindset yeah. even post-athletic career because your body does break down, right? Mm-hmm. You can't do it for more than 20 years. That's right. 
but you need to continue that mental push in order yeah. to keep being successful. That's right. To be the best that you can be. So let's let's go into more. Yeah. Um, you're into like mental mental health issues. Please yeah. describe to me your mental health. I hate saying activism, but right now mm-hmm. off the top of my head, it's well, all I'm saying on, on <laughs> social media. So it's just it's in my head. <laughs> Give me a different word that you would describe your mental health endeavors as far as your your yeah. what 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 takes up your time. Well, I, I like to say I'm a voice and an advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention. That's what I am. That's what I do now. I'm proudly wearing my NAMI shirt here, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. I'm a board member with NAMI Seattle. And so uh, we are all about trying to destigmatize what mental health and mental issues are all about. Uh, I posted something on social media today. Two out of five of us will suffer some kind of mental serious mental challenge in our lifetime two out of five two out of five 40 percent of us that's pretty big it will probably be three out of five once we're done with this pandemic and shut down wow yes most of us suffer in silence we don't talk about it you can't see it beyond the the public first persona that we all wear Mm -hmm. our, our public face we put on we don't know what's going on in anybody else's life unless they tell us and mental health is one of those things that really is uh, crippling and devastating. And it, and it occurred to me, myself, in 2018. My life was rolling right along until 2015. I had a major, major open-heart surgery, emergency procedure, for an aortic aneurysm. And how did you, can, can we talk, can we explore that? Like, how, how did, what, what happened that day, if you want to talk about it? That day, I'm out trying to play golf with some of my friends. I'm feeling terrible. My back is killing me. I'm sweating profusely. I'm nauseated. I told the guys, I said, hey, I'm going to go see my doctor. And I left the golf course, headed over to a Swedish hospital over in Ballard. And I remember barely making it through the doorway and seeing the reception desk, and everything went black. I fell out right there in the reception waiting area. They did a quick diagnostic scan on me, determined it was my heart, threw me in the ambulance, took me up to Cherry Hill, 11 and a half hour open heart surgery. For Immediate. Immediately for an aortic dissection. I'm not sure if you know what that is, but it's, it's one of the most difficult surgeries to ever have and only a 2% survival rate. 250,000 people a year have the surgery. 2% survival rate. I was one of the 2% that survived. And so that was January 2015. Not too long ago. Six years ago. Um, that was for my ascending aorta, the upper one. I, the next year, I had a descending aorta surgery done. Not quite as emergency status as the first one, but it was necessary. My life started going downhill uh, during those first couple of years, 2015, 2016, um, I'm no, no longer able to do a portion of anything physical that I used to be able to do. <clears throat> Up until that point, I was 57 years old. I was running three days a week. Very young. Yeah, three or four days, three or four miles at a time, downtown Seattle. I'm in the gym four, five, six days a week. Uh, I'm working out with uh, quite a few of my friends are Seattle police officers. A lot of us are at the gym down here right across from the Columbia Tower. And we're working out every morning. We're having great times. Uh, I was in tip-top shape, and all of a sudden this, this thing just happened. Uh, if it would have burst 
It almost burst, but if it would have burst, it would have been the end. You would have been dead. You would have bled out immediately. After a half dozen heartbeats, you're done. You're done, and nobody can save you. So that began the my mental decline, physical first, and then mental. 2016, my mother passed away. I went through a, a painful divorce. Uh, my finances were starting to dwindle because I'm pouring more and more of my personal NBA savings into my business to keep it going. Banks were no longer banking small businesses thanks to the Great Recession we all went through. So you were in a very, very small box of eligibility for any kind of loans to help your business out. Uh, and that was 216. Um, the rest of 216, 217, I started, I was coming home to an empty house and the walls would close in on me every single evening. And I'd wake up. The and, wolves were at the door. Oh, you, you, you know, and your mind is working in a way where you only have one or two options. You know, everything else is not even on the plate. One option was, okay, I got to figure it out. I got to get some more money together. I got to put it into my business. Got to save everything. The other option was I need to exit this world and kill myself. Whoa. Oh, yeah, that was it. That was it. And, um. You know, it was a really, really tough go. After a week or two of waking up at 1 or 2 in the morning and not being able to sleep the rest of the evening, rest of the night, I realized something was wrong. Something was not quite right. And I reached out to my doctor, and uh, I made an appointment with him, and I went in to see him. Luckily, he was the kind of doctor who was very inquisitive, very intuitive, asked me a lot of questions on what was going on. And he said, James, whoa, you, you are suffering from depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideations. All three. Just based upon his preliminary workup of you. Yes, and what I was telling him and sharing with him. Uh, he, he put me on prescription medication. This is the beginning of 2018, just a couple of years ago. Uh, put me on prescription medication for six months, assigned me a, a behavior health counselor, for several months, uh, I brought together a small group of my own personal friends who had known me for 30 or 40 years. And I told those guys, I said, hey, if I need to talk to somebody at 1.30 in the morning, can I call you? And they all put their hand up to a, to a person and say, yes, put us, put us on speed dial. True friends. True friends. And I said, hey, I also need you guys to check in on me two or three times a week. Just call me and see how my day's going. What's on my mind? What's bothering me? What's too heavy for me to handle? And they all, and there's a six or seven guys. Two of them were my former coaches, George Raffling and, and, and Lenny Wilkins. Is that right? They were right there for me throughout all of this. This went on for 12 months, Mike. Total, total darkness, 2018. And the darkness didn't begin to lift until later in the year of 2018, where I finally decided are discovered, I still have a reason to be here. I still have, uh, because I had lost everything. Uh, my home went into foreclosure, bankruptcy, my wife, my mother, my business, my health, my mental health, my physical health, everything was upside down, all within the course of a, about six or 12 months. And so I made it through that after 12 months of total darkness, and what emerged out of that was one, running for city council. I, I started saying, wow, I still have so much to give. I still love this city. I still want to make a difference. 
And running for city council gave me a purpose and a reason to get up out of bed every day, run all over the city doing the things we do on the campaign trail. And the other was starting up my nonprofit foundation, which is Your Gift of Life at yourgiftoflife.org. Um, and we'll put that in the notes. Yes, for, for, thank for, you. So when people have this, they can link to it directly. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and so uh, my nonprofit foundation really gives me a platform to get out and speak to student groups all around the country, and that's what I was doing before the pandemic. Uh, speaking to middle school and high school students. Um, every time I'm in front of four or five, six hundred kids, invariably four or five, six kids come up to me afterwards and tell me that they are suicidal. The kids. Kids. Middle school. Middle school. 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-olds. Yes. They're suicidal right now. And they don't know how they're going to make it through the night. So. Did, that, you, did you have... Um, was there a, in your darkest moments, did you have, was there a voice in your head that was telling you, we can get through this? Was there something well, that, that, that you can recall that got you out of that darkness that you can, that you can rec recount to the audience right now? Well, you know, I am, um, I've always been a, a religious person. I grew up in a religious home, Christian home. I still go to church. My church home is Mount Zion Baptist Church up on 19th and Madison. I've been there for 35 years. And so I always knew that, uh, you know, God, God was still there with me. If nobody else was there, God was still there. He was there. Yes. And he was... Without your faith, do you think you would have taken your life? I think so. I had absolutely nothing to live for. Nothing. After all I accomplished, it was all gone. And I want to tell you this. I, I was going over methods of taking my life. And one of them was suicide by cop. I was going to go and wrestle, wrestle with one of the police officers, try to take his gun and be shot on the spot and killed. This was only a couple years ago. Two years ago. So, thankfully, I made it through all of that. That's how your mind works when you're not thinking straight, when you're mentally unbalanced. Uh, I've emerged from all that, totally recovered, totally back on top of things. It still brings me to tears to recall that because it was so real. It was so real and so near the edge of me going over the edge. I didn't attempt suicide. I didn't attempt to take my life, but I, I darn well thought about it and had it all planned out. And so this is what gets me into the work that I do now for the National Alliance of Mental Illness, uh, for being a voice and an advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention for encouraging our young people to hang in there no matter what. So we, so I'm usually the guy that can t talk about something, right? I, mm -hmm. I'm just profoundly moved by that story that you told me. Like I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I would say I, I haven't been, I haven't been mm -hmm. down your path that you've had. Yeah. Um, 
I'm fearful that if I ever do, what that would look like. And I think, and not going outside the lines here, but I would hope that I would have the courage yeah. to push through like you have. And that's my encouragement to everybody. Right. Reach out for help. Push through. You can do it. You can do it. Do, do you feel the day in that golf course where you're experiencing just not feeling well? Mm-hmm. If you didn't have that day, and let's say you didn't touch on that physical issue with you, do you think you would have gone down that path mentally? No, or was no. that the catalyst that day? No, that wasn't the only catalyst. That was the beginning of a series of catalysts. Got it. Uh, my life was totally fine and dandy, and I was doing great. My business was great. My health was great. My finances were great. Uh, everything, I was on top of the world. And it can happen to anybody. At any time. At any point in your life. It happened to me at 57. That's a strong message. Yes. And, you know, and so I'm, I'm really trying to be a voice to our communities of color, especially, because we communities of color do not want to recognize mental illness. It's a big, big stigma. Why, big. Is, that, why is that a stigma in your, in your community? I think, I think we are grown, grown up to, to tough it out. You know, life is hard. For people of color, life is hard. And we learn to tough it out and not ask for help outside of our immediate family. Uh, there are so few mental health therapists of color. I mean, less than 2% probably around the country are mental health therapists of color. And so when a person of color goes to see a a therapist, typically, they're going to see a white person back there who won't be able to relate to them relate. culturally. Yeah. Uh, what my first behavioral health counselor was a young white woman just out of med school. No connection. 24, 25 years old. What in the world could she tell me about what I'm going through and what it's like to be in this skin and this body other than having me go home and count sheep, which was one of her... Recommendations: Count sheep at night, and you fall asleep. Do you mind if I interject here and just give you a personal story please, that please. I've already alluded to on the podcast? Yes. But I think it's it goes along the lines of what you've just described. I've said this before a couple of times. Like when I came into Seattle, I wanted to go into the high crime area. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work the community that had the high crime, Rainier yes. Valley. Yes, right, right there. Yeah, CD Rainier Avenue, Elmo King. Mm-hmm. I had, I didn't know the societal implications of going into a black culture mm. with being a white police officer. All I cared about was trying to protect that community, but just going after the bad people that were doing harm. <laughs> I don't see, and I equate it to what you just yeah. described, how on earth can a white guy in uniform That's right. understand what that community is going through if you're just there to enforce the law? That's right. No. And so we're automatically behind the eight ball. That's right when we're even putting that uniform on, getting in that car, mm-hmm. if we don't understand the societal cultural impacts, yeah. right? And I would like to change that with through conversations with you, mm-hmm. your community, and just understanding of this, the police culture too. Like yeah. we're just people trying to do a job and we come from all yeah. walks of life. Yes, yes, yes. And I, and I get that. You know, When I was growing up, the police were our friends. I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood in South Sacramento. Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, 
you name it, uh, lower income, white folks, we were all together growing up. And this is the neighborhood I grew up. And the police were our friends. The police would come by and we'd all chat with them. They'd chat with us as kids. But growing up 40 years later, it's totally different now. You know, we, we now are making the police the enemy, the bad guy, without even giving them any consideration, any, any opportunity to prove how good a people they are. Um, but I think the way to help remedy that is to get our police officers back out into the neighborhoods on foot, have them walk the beats, walk the neighborhoods, engage with the young people and the kids, and I think that will start coming back together again. Yeah, because it just seems we just go there, we answer a call for service, we give you a case number and take care. That's right, that's right. right? And then you have no community engagement. Yeah. There's no, I guess, ownership of the people, to get to know the people that you that that, yeah. that you serve. I mean, it's like touch and go, yeah. in and out. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. And that's a serious problem. It is. I, I don't know how there's, to... There, there's no connection. No. I mean, you, you drive up and your your darkly tinted windows and this this fancy armored looking car yeah. that is just there for business is all serious business. There's no friendliness to this at all, and a lot of the officers come in with all their gear on and they you know they look like you know all this all the stuff they're wearing just walking the beat. Why? Uh, but you know these are things that I've worked on for forty years here in Seattle. I, I've been part of our communities, every single community especially our black community. Like I mentioned, I, I've been at church at Mount Zion for 35 years. So I, I know all the players in the community. I know all the people. I, I've been part of all the things that we've been doing, um, trying to make a difference, especially in the areas of education and mentoring, sure. positive African and male role modeling, which is so desperately needed. What do you... Do you think that there's a significant issue with the fatherless homes in the African-American community? Mm -hmm. I, I really believe so. I, I really believe that is one of the biggest, biggest issues that we don't like to talk about. Uh, we don't like having being pointed out to us. But when you have 70, 75% of African-American households being single female-headed households, the men are missing. The men are either incarcerated or they're on the streets or they're in the jails or they're, they're somewhere, but they're not at home. Why are they incarcerated, James? Like, what, what's, where is this breaking down? Is it a policing problem? Is it because the police, and, this, and the, you know, no. is this a racial issue where the police target you because of the color of your skin? I don't think necessarily it's a racial issue. I think, I mean, Unfortunately, a lot of communities of color are higher crime rate communities. Sure. They're, you're going to get a lot more calls to those communities. That's so why I went there when I was a patrol officer. Right. I wanted to go work those areas. Not yes. because I was racist, but I wanted the action. It well, was fun. You'll get plenty of action. Car chases, foot pursuits, <laughs> well, right? Now, part of the onus needs to be on us members of the communities of color. You know, we've got to be more responsible to ourselves and to our communities, to our families, to our neighbors, uh, not get out there and do so many of the activities that are going to bring all this police activity to our neighborhoods. And then not to confront all of that uh, and, and to be belligerent or provocative in trying to get the police officer to do something 
that the officer obviously doesn't want to do, but if you keep pushing them far enough, far enough, far enough. They're only human. They're only human, and something is bound to happen. So we, we've got to get that into our community that that's not okay behavior. Uh, I grew up, as I said, with a military father, and he, he told me he had to talk with me when I was a young man. Hey, if the police officer tells you to put your hands on the wheel, put them on the wheel and keep them there. Did you, let's get into this, did you ever experience racism on behalf of the police towards you? No, I can't say I ever did. Um, I remember me and my uh, younger brother were in a, in, a, in a store down in Sacramento, uh, you know, uh, probably 20, 30 years ago. And uh, the store owner was a, was a female, a, fem- a Caucasian female. It was getting close to closing hours. She was getting nervous because just he and I in there, and we're both larger-than-life guys, She's nervous because it's all can be and starting to stammer and to hurry us out of the way. So she was probably trying just, I guess, reacting to the stereotype of a large black male. Absolutely. Crime is afoot, right? Something's going to happen. Yeah. And she's by herself. Sure. Uh, and we could tell she was nervous. Uh, you know, and now I'm, I'm back in the day of playing in the NBA. I'm like, lady, I, I can buy your store. <laughs> pocket money <laughs> come on this is back in those days right she didn't know who i was but i was a imposing intimidating figure sure. and that's the racist stereotypical racist stuff that comes out um unfortunately but i think it's more individual uh i don't really believe it's baked into all of our institutions and things because individuals run institutions you get a couple bad individuals, they're going to do bad things. Fair enough. Yeah, and so that's kind of how I try to break it down that way. Yeah, so uh, when you talk, I mean, it was, it was, thank you for sharing how your struggles mm-hmm. with mental health and, like, when I first met you, you had this, just this energy around you. Mm, yeah, thanks. And what I mean by energy is a positive energy. Yeah. Even today when you came here, and even when you're, t- mm-hmm. you s- when you talk, you seem to have a perpetual smile on your face. Uh, well. <laughs> I mean, I think it's authentic. I don't think you're trying to shy me for no. political reasons. You're no. actually, yeah. I can sense yeah. and see it in your eyes. Yeah, yeah. And so that to me resonates with people, resonates with me yeah. especially. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes into your your book here is celebrating your gift of life, mm-hmm. right? Yes, yes. And so I think it's the way you're carrying yourself is that even with just the way you present to people, yeah, even yeah. with perception of being a big, big black man who, yeah. you know, might be, some people might find that intimidating, mm-hmm. right, due to stereotypes and mm-hmm. whatever. But the way you carry yourself, yeah. you're full of life. Yeah. Even when you were going to use a cop to kill you. Yeah. With that mindset, right? I've always been that way. And um, because I, I, I truly love people uh, of every background, every stripe, every culture. Uh, you know, I, I've lived in several different countries. I've, I've learned three or four different languages. Uh, I played six years of basketball over in Europe, in Spain, Italy, and Greece. I learned Spanish, Greek, and Italian. I learned the great histories of these people. These people are still great friends of mine 20, 30 years later. Uh, and so, unfortunately, a lot of us Americans don't get a chance to travel abroad and get different experiences outside of our neighborhoods. We need to do that more. We need to send our, our high school kids abroad for a semester. Let them see something else and different in the world. So what is it with your book yeah. that you find uh, the, the, the hidden message in there? Not hidden, but yeah. the message that you're trying to convey to people that 
should read it. That no matter how dark and difficult the times may be, you can get through it. But you can't get through it alone. And that's the problem with mental illness. Too many of us try to do it alone. Uh, we, we keep our little smile on our face. No one knows what's going on inside. Uh, and so I'm encouraging all the readers to evaluate yourself. I have a lot of exercises in the book where they can write down and, and write down their thoughts. They can do exercises at the end of every chapter to kind of get an evaluation of where they are mentally. And if you need help, reach out to your medical professionals. This is my first and most arduous advice to anybody. Reach out to your medical professionals. Don't rely on substance abuse stuff. I mean, and luckily, I've never been, uh, I've never had issues with substance. I've never drank a drop of alcohol. I've never smoked a cigarette, never smoked a joint, never did drugs of any types. And so that was my, me and my life, though. But a lot of people who are going through mental issues are dealing with substance abuse issues as well. They drink more. They drug more. They domestic violence more. So self-medicate. To try to forget the pain. My two main focus groups with my, my work I do with mental illness are our young generation of students, middle school and high school. You know, so you're talking about 12-year-olds, 18-year-olds, and men. Young men adult men, older men, men are notorious for not, not reaching out and showing vulnerabilities, uh, for not letting anybody see them cry, to not let anybody see that they're hurt or they're vulnerable. Men do not want to do these things because of the way we're raised as, as little boys. Hold the Line with Mike Solon is sponsored by StopDefunding.com. The senseless trend of defunding police departments must be stopped. Over 200,000 reasonable citizens have already signed our petition, and we need your help. Visit StopDefunding.com and add your signature to help us protect public safety. Now more than ever, our voices must be heard. Speak up at StopDefunding.com. We just talked about, you know, you all those countries you went to and that you've developed almost this experience as a human being, different types of cultures, it's made you more well-rounded as an individual. Mm -hmm. And I think what, to our point of earlier in our conversation, it's what's missing from our society in general is yeah. that, that the lack of diversity. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. The lack of uh, life experiences, even outside of your own, your own little reality, your own little sphere. Uh, America has had the opportunity or the benefit of being the world leader since World War II. We didn't have to travel to other countries to see how they're doing and learn their language, learn their cultures, you know, except for vacation. Sure. They all came here. Uh, they all wanted to learn about what America was all about. We, we lost our, 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 our intellectual curiosity to learn about other people. I don't know if we ever had it, but we didn't, we lost it over those last 70, 80 years. It's almost as if we've become too immersed in politics on both sides. And I think that we've yeah. kind of just, yeah. we have lost the way to just have a conversation yeah. with people. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. right. Well, and America itself used to be called the, the shining, the shining uh, beacon, the shining beacon up on the hill. Yeah. I don't think people are looking at us that way anymore around the world. Um, 
You know, a lot of my uh, international friends, they, they wonder what in the world is wrong with America now. What happened to you guys? Uh, I can't explain it. I just, I think it's been a, a de-evolution. <laughs> I don't, we're not going up, we're going down of things that have been going on over the last uh, several decades. Yeah. It's too bad. And I'm looking at more of your bio. Um, you mentioned Mount, Mount Zion. You've been there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You're obviously heavily involved in the NAACP. Yes, yes. Um, Urban League, all of them. What made you become immersed in those groups? Well, you know, I, I think my parents did me a favor of, of not inflicting a lot of the pain of segregation that they went through especially my dad. My dad grew up in Indiana, outside Indianapolis, KKK country. Where, where was this like? Uh, where was this? That's where he grew up, my father. Okay. Uh, back in the 30s and the 40s. Uh, and so he escaped that to go to the military as a young man and put 20 years into the Air Force. But he, to this day, never will talk to me about the hurt and the pain that he went through as a young man. So he never put that into me. So I never grew up with the bitterness and the hatred of just being bitter and hatred, uh, hating. Because I, I guess it could stain you that does. from experiencing that, that does. on your own, right? That, that exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, I've had a lot of uh, older, um, elderly friends who I can speak to about those times back in the 30s and the 40s, they'll tell me their experiences, but it's not the same as my dad telling me him, uh, telling me his experiences, which he refuses to do. He doesn't want to put that negativity into me. So I didn't grow up with that negativity. I grew up with a curiosity of the world. I grew up as a pretty good student in high school, uh, wanting to make my way on to college, the first one from my family to make their way on to college on a basketball scholarship. Um, and that really began my evolution into becoming who I am today. I think if I was stained with all that negativity and adversity that my dad would have put into me, as so many of our young African-American kids are, uh, it, it really affects you in a way that you just, it becomes part of your psyche. You can't get away from it. Uh, Grandmama said this, you know, Papa said this, be aware of this. Stay away from that. You never get a chance to experience life. And personalizing that account for me in mm-hmm. my life, I, I literally just caught myself reflecting on what I'm doing to my children. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that what I'm experiencing yeah. is even comparison to what segregation was like or racism sure. to a certain part of our community, right? Right, right. Please right. understand that. Yeah. But I say this with reflection of, am I taking what the police are experiencing, my role in this police department, Mm. am I internalizing that negativity onto my children Mm. who are very impressionable right now? And I think sometimes just reflecting, maybe I need to change my course of action because I don't want to stain them Mm -hmm. in a negative way. Right. Well, that, that, that's, that's where it begins, I think, at the home. And uh, kids are just empty vessels, innocent empty vessels waiting to be filled in with all kind of you know, good and bad. Sure. 
uh, and the parents have the most primary job of making sure that it's good uh, influences that are going into their children. It, and I keep circling back to the police thing because that's, yeah. that's why we're here, right? That's, I mean, that's right. It's my role. Um, that started because they're they started to hear their school Zoom calls about all the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd stuff, and mm-hmm. police being blamed yeah. for the actions of one yeah. indiscriminately across the board. Mm. And for me, it's like, if this is happening in school discussions, my kids are like, what? My dad's a police officer. He's this person. Right, right, right. Right? And then, you know, y- y- it's almost like, uh, again, I don't want to compare what yeah. the black community has gone through, for sure, God's sake. Sure, but sure. it's almost like, we're picking another group to segregate for purposes to, for, to divide us at a time when we need unity. Mm-hmm. And I, just me not experiencing what you've experienced or you've the, your culture's experience, to me that is so strikingly f- uh, just yeah. problematic that it impacts me, right? But I say that with a white man. Yeah. yeah. People that say that I got white privilege, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Amen. I, I was born in this world the way that I am. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate with what I grew up with. That's right. Please That's right. don't compare me to somebody's actions. Don't paint the broad brush yeah. for police overall. Right? I agree with that. I agree with that. Uh, but it's the, it's the easiest path to take, to paint everybody with a broad brush and to say they're all going to be that way. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think we face in this country is our... Our, our lack of trust, our lack of faith in any of our institutions anymore. Uh, a few days ago, we saw the, 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 the March on Washington, where citizens actually entered into the White House, sacred ground. Uh, that would have never happened, you know, even 10 years ago, a generation ago, two gen- No, that it, would have never happened. It should happened. have never happened. It should have never happened. But so we don't have faith in our institutions of politics, of, of religion. Of upside down. Yes, of, of education, of, of, you know, of hardly anything we can really put our trust and faith in to give us kind of a, a moral compass, so to speak. Moral compass, that's my word. I like that a lot. Of how to, how to act and how to behave. Um, our, you know, ch- our churches have been eerily quiet all through 2020. I just heard this not too long ago. Yeah. But we've heard of the Roaring Twenties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it's the Riotous Twenties. Oh, I, I would agree. I stole that from somebody <laughs> yeah. who, whom you might know. I might know who that is. Yes. That's right. That's right. It's really, really good. But it's so, it's so on message, right? But we shouldn't condone. Yeah. We should condemn all sides, yeah. all sorts of political That's violence. Right. That's right. Whether you're on the right or the left. That's right. That's right. You, you saw a lot of my activities this summer. I'm, I'm out there over at Chop and Jazz almost every other day doing short little video clips. I post it up on Facebook and social media all the time uh, because I, I, I felt and I know it's not right what was happening up at Chop Jazz. Uh, you cannot let people just willy-nilly go do what they want to do without any kind of sense of... And we didn't have any public official... None. Condemn that, none, none. and then who were victimized the most? That's right. Young African American men. Two African American men were killed. Why? And on the same part of that, the people that serve our community, I think, with distinction. And yes, we do make mistakes sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I have yet to hear a city council member condemn the acts of violence towards the police officers no. that no. are there to try to hold public no. order. I absolutely. I d- 
I don't, I don't know. Stunning. I don't know so hard about that. I mean, yeah, you're an elected official. This is your job. This is what we elected you for to speak and be a voice for your constituents. My activities this summer at Chop and Chaz, I felt I was being a voice for the non vocal majority. The reasonable majority. That's what I refer to them as. I yes. think it's a reasonable, ignored majority. Yes. That are, I think, what hesitant to speak out. Why? Fear of the mob or the bully behavior that can, in, that can in, just like the Portland mayor, just like the, the mob that marched on Mayor Durkin's home. Okay, those things happen. They shouldn't happen. But, yeah, so I felt I was a voice. And being up at Chop Chaz, doing my video shots, and getting thousands of views on all the social media stuff, people love this stuff. I was calling it out. I was, call, I was saying, where is the mayor? That's leadership from you. Yes. Uh, I was calling for her to resign, even back in the summertime. Uh, and I said, hey, I'm just a citizen. I'm a concerned citizen. That's all I am. I'm not an elected official. But I care about the city. And our elected officials got to care as well. But they don't. But my huge majority block of non-vocal folks weren't saying anything. I heard very little from anybody. Maybe it doesn't affect them in their little neighborhood up at the north end of Seattle or Magnolia or where, wherever they are. But this was happening right here in Seattle all summer long. And two African-American men, young men, were killed. So much for our, our Black Lives Matter movement. Where were they to speak on this? So I had problems with all of this all summer long, and it just kept me going... And I tell you, you know, it, when you find a reason and a purpose for, for what your life ought to be about, this is what my life is all about. Well, it's part of celebrating life. It is. Isn't it? Making it the fullest it can be. Yes, yes. Because if you, if you sit back and don't do anything, yeah. what are you then contributing to? Yeah, I, I don't understand. To the continued decay That's right. of our societal social structure. That's right. And then you, more of those 12 and 13-year-old children that's right that's right who are contemplating suicide absolutely they will become more prolific won't it yeah that that's our hope and uh you know I, i'm a student of uh, dr martin luther king jr and you know one of his great sermons he talks about right is right it always has been and always will be and wrong is wrong it always has been and always will be why can't we see that but very few of us heed the words of Dr. King anymore, you know, 60, 70 years later. But those are things he was talking about back then. Give me one critique of policing in this city that you would like to see on behalf of your interactions with us and what you've seen, what you've heard. What can we do better? Well, I, I mentioned one, and I think that is getting out of your patrol cars and actually walk into neighborhood streets engaging with the neighbors. Um, ride, a, ride a bike. I don't care if you walk or ride a bike or, or ride a horse. Uh, a horse would even bring all the kids out. You know, but engage with those neighbors and let them see that you're a real-life person. They know your name, your first name, your last name, your badge, the officer, officer so-and-so, whoever you are, and you actually get to know some of those kids. In terms of accountability, all we hear from the activists is more accountability, more accountability. Yeah. And this is me on my stick, right? We've engaged in reform process. We're still under settlement agreement. Mm -hmm. 
going on 10 years, right before George Floyd occurred, president of the city council and the mayor applauded this agency as being that model of reform, that beacon. (laughs) I remember. The most progressive (laughs) agency in the the nation. I remember. Leading on de-escalation and training, et cetera. Yeah. Now, since George Floyd, they've walked back any support mm, mm, mm. and they're continuing the settlement agreement. Yeah. Um, how do we as a community support public safety with that type of, I guess, energy aimed towards the men and women that do the job of policing? How do, how, how do we overcome yeah. that public safety challenge? Yeah. Our, our, our voices need to be heard. Our, our, our non-vocal majority needs to start speaking up on behalf of themselves. Yes, they all have a vote, and most of them probably do vote, uh, even though it's only at 25, 27% of our electorate that actually votes every time. We need to get that up to a 40, 50 percentile participation in the election process. Uh, Send a message to these elected officials that if you're not gonna represent us, you're not gonna do the job we elected you to do, we're gonna vote you out of office. And they need to have that kind of fear of knowing that their constituents are watching and are going to hold them accountable, then they'll start doing the right thing. Then and only then will they start doing the right thing. Right now, there's no repercussions for them either. You know, it's it's just insane what I've been watching the last several years of our... So what I'm getting from you is that does does Seattle have a future? I think so with good leadership in good places, in the right places. Uh, you need a leader who has a vision, um, a plan, can, can message that plan, can, can bring together different, uh, different demographics of the community and work with all of them uh, and listen to all of them more importantly. I think that's where we go wrong so many times is we don't really listen uh, you know, and I've been watching a lot of the Seattle Channel and the and the City Council open forums and things. And they don't listen to these people who are given their two minutes to speak. Yeah, be, um, I don't know if you've ever participated in the public forum. I have call yes, in. I have, especially in the COVID stuff. Yes, it it appears is that most of the people participating in that public forum yeah. were, you were readings from scripts. Yes, that seemed very coordinated and planned. No, and no. I was personally doxxed from that where they took my personal cell phone number. Oh. And of course, I had to change. Well um, played, activists. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> um, but that's just the level of, of what we're up against. When yeah. people believe in the cause so so deeply yeah. registering with them, right? That's a terrible way of putting it. But well, they, be, they, they believe in it so much yeah. that they'll do anything to keep pushing that narrative. Yeah. And I, I just commend you for your, your courage. But, but mm-hmm. more importantly, I think... Your journey through life, I mean, most people, especially my age, were tuned with sports, mm-hmm. right? I'm a big hockey and soccer guy. Yeah. Horrible at basketball. <laughs> but I'll still dunk over you any day of well, the week. Yeah, we, okay, okay. <laughs> um, I, we look up to sports figures. Yes, yeah. And it appears that sports now is immersed in a lot of social justice stuff. And I think that's leading to some of the decay. And I almost feel like it's doing a disservice to social justice for some reason. Right. And, we're, and we're just, when you lose your ability to just go somewhere mentally yes. to escape, uh-huh. but now where you go to historically to escape is now being 
in your face. It's like that's right. it's leading to further polarization that's of right. our society. That's right. I'm saying, how can you? Yeah. Stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. We need courageous individuals who can step up and and be able to uh, be able to bridge those divides and bring people together and work with them. And that's just so rare nowadays. You know, uh, personally, I don't know why anybody uh, worth worth his or her salt would even run for elected office, would even be a, a law enforcement officer. Why? Yeah, because the, 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 the scrutiny is, is too much. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I can only account for my, what happens to me personally, but my membership too, like, we, we're, like just today. Just to get the vaccines mm. for our people, mm-hmm. like they're talking about, we need to release certain personal information to people outside of our control. That I'm so fearful that if they get our full name, date of birth, yeah, yeah. our email, and our employee ID number, wow. that's going to give the activists more, more of the ability to further get into us and dox us and then visit us at our homes. Absolutely. I mean, this is the assault on our system. Yeah, yeah. And so, like to your point. How could anybody want to do this? Because that's how they, if they yeah. put that pre- that much pressure on reasonable mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. then they're not going to yeah. take the office. And then they can get their way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's a very scary time we're in. And yeah. I just I commend you yes. for just you know your, number one your courage to come on here yeah. and just account for just your growth as a human being, mm-hmm. yeah. your journey through your mental health. That's right. And you've opened up in a way that not many people do, just an interaction, let alone on camera. Yeah. And just meeting somebody for the second time, right? Me and you. And it's, it's just like, to me, it's uh, yeah. it's moving yeah. and it's real. And um, we need more people like you, sir, to yeah. uh, to step up and lead. Yeah, I, And you're I, showing I, it. I appreciate that. I mean, after I came out of my darkness, uh, this this has become the next chapter of my life. Uh, really being an advocate for mental health and suicide prevention. Um, I speak about it all the time. It brings me to tears every single time, even though I try not to. It still comes back, even that little mention. Um, But I love my life. I I celebrate my life. I want everybody to celebrate their life. I want everybody to live life and live it abundantly. Uh, We can do that, but... I think we all need to just kind of take a self-introspective check on ourselves and see where we are. What do we believe? Who are we following? What is guiding us? What is directing us? And why? I don't think people take time to do that little simple exercise to really understand who they are. That's how I knew something was wrong with me. I knew myself very, very well. I knew. I, I sleep through the night every night for... 50, 60 years, and all of a sudden I couldn't sleep through the night? Something's wrong. I knew that. So that's when I reached out for help. Um, so I, I live my life in a way that I've been blessed to have this platform of professional sports, of being uh, educated African-American male who hasn't gotten into trouble, don't have a criminal record, never been arrested, I've done, I try to do and have done all the right things. I try to be a positive role model for our young African-American men and boys here in Seattle. I'm, I'm on a mentoring uh, Zoom call next Saturday with a group of young African-American boys who are 
transitioning into being young men. Uh, I do this kind of work. I've done this work for 40 years. I, I want to see more progress. Uh, the progress has been incremental, though. There's still that big divide between, you know, our education, our health, all these disparities that we see, income, jobs, opportunities. I'm one for giving everybody an opportunity and an equal opportunity to come in and do your job. Prove yourself. Um, but, you know, we live in a very, very difficult time now that I hope enough people are still willing to step up and lead. Seattle's still the greatest city I've ever lived in, without a doubt. And I want us to get back to a point where we can be proud of this city. Uh, people around the country can talk about us with pride and not be the laughing stock that we were during this 2020 Summer of Love experiment that we went through. It was horrific. Uh, I really felt for all of our people in Seattle, but a lot of my friends from overseas were calling and checking in on me too and saying, hey, how close are you to Chaz? Uh, did you really see what's going on? And that's just, it's just disturbing, but I know we can do better. I, I aim to keep on putting my time and effort into it to do better, to lead others, to tutor and mentor others, to be tutored and mentored by others. I mean, this is how, this is how life is supposed to work. Continued learning. It is a pursuit. And of, a celebration of life. A pursuit of learning. Yeah. You know, you and I, we briefly talked about the public safety issues impacting, we mainly focused on police, right? Because I think it's relevant. It's what plagues a lot of the political conversation. We're being used yeah. for political purposes. The profession is. Um, we've mentioned the decay, the breakdown of Seattle's, I guess, public safety mm -hmm. overall. Mm -hmm. How does the issues in surrounding homelessness, I guess, I guess, add into that conversation. Like, I, I believe that we've seen, we talked yeah. about the past 10, 7 years since the Great Recession that That's you right. described. That's right. Homelessness seems to have exploded here. Yeah. It's like we welcome anybody and everything to this great, beautiful city. Yeah. But yet, the way they treat this, this city and it's an amazing geographical, mm -hmm. I guess, prowess, if you will, yeah. is being met with garbage uh, pollution, and just overall no respect to the rule of law. Yeah, yeah. And so how do we, how, how do we overcome this homeless issue? Yeah. Well, one, one thing I think the overriding element to all that is our, our elected officials have uh, enabled uh, homelessness to flourish here. Uh, there are very few repercussions for putting a tent up anywhere in Seattle, uh, and just camping out. We, we just don't do anything about it anymore. Um, and uh, so much of the homeless issue, uh, you know, I'd, I'd venture to say 30, 40% of them may be suffering from mental issues. They need help. Uh, I believe in intervention. You have to go and find out who these people are, what's going on with them, their name, their address, where they came from, uh, medications that they may be on or need to be on. 
these are the intervening ways that you have to really kind of take control of the situation until they can take control of the situation back in a healthy yeah. way. Okay, so they almost have to, I want to put words in your mouth, so correct me, but right. they almost have to hit rock bottom before well, before that, that can happen, or can we, can we intervene before that happens? I think you can intervene well before that happens. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, there are some homeless folks who just want to live on the streets. As a choice. As a choice. They, they want to remove themselves from all the rules and the norms of society and do their own thing and just live on the streets and move about whenever they move about. And so if, if there's no repercussions, re, sorry, repercussions <laughs> to their actions, yeah. basically it's lawlessness, it's carefree, yeah. but that carefree attitude impacts who in our community? Well, it impacts everyone. Everyone. Everyone, yes. Uh, neighbors, uh, the unsightliness of so many of these encampments. Um, uh, I, 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 I just, it brings me to tears almost to see how people can let themselves live in these situations. And is Seattle as caring as it is yeah. as a populace? Like yeah. we're, we genuinely care about other, other we do. humans. We do. Are we really caring for them? No, no, we're not. Uh, we're doing them a disservice by allowing them, again, to stay on this slippery slope. They're only going downhill eventually to, you know, serious, serious physical and mental issues, if not death, living out in these elements. And a lot of that is substance abuse. Yeah, yeah. Drug abuse. Yes. Do you feel as if we provide safe injection sites to these people that are literally struggling with an addiction, mm -hmm. will that assist them getting out of that uh, no. that circle? No, no, it doesn't. It just enables them to continue the behavior. Now, when you intervene, you can see somebody who's seriously drug uh, addicted and either bring them into a facility where they can get help and medical help especially, uh, maybe something to counteract the drug that they're taking on a daily, multi many times a day basis. But you have to intervene. They're not thinking for themselves. Just like when I was going through my mental uh, issues and mental challenges, I wasn't thinking in my right mind. Who in the world wants to go up and wrestle with a police officer? Come I on. wouldn't want to wrestle you. You're huge. Uh, but you you could take care of business. If you <laughs> right, yeah, all right. <laughs> you know, Thank you. Who, who in the right mind would think that? I'm in my right. right mind now. I would never think that again. But going through what I went through, you I'm went there, and you had police officer friends. Police officer but friends. But you were willing to impact another human being. That's right. Who would have to live with that choice to take your life for the rest of their life. That's right. That's and how right. that would impact them mentally. Yeah. Because a lot of police officers, a lot of first yeah. responders are impacted with mental health they issues. They really are. They truly are. Profoundly. Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly right. Uh, I've got a dear friend of mine who is on my board of directors with my foundation. He's a mental health professional. And he provides mental services to first responders. So we talk about these things, of course, names and private information removed, but we talk about situations of what the police are going through on the streets, first responders, fire, you know, all of them. Uh, they are really stressed out at this point. Uh, and a lot of them taking this negativity constantly. Their families take this negativity, the kids. They, they go see my friend and talk to him about these things, and he tries to help them through these things. They're just people. They're just people. They're just people. That's right. That's why we're fighting so hard for our reputation. That's right. Because we're just humans, and we just do a job. 
Yeah, but we keep my, on pushing back. You're not going to stop us. We've got to get to a point where we're not enabling the situation to exacerbate and keep on growing in front of our eyes. Um, we've got to bring these folks into a facility, the homeless encampment of people, and really evaluate what it is they need. If they need shelter, provide shelter. If they need clothing, they need medication, they need counseling, they need a job. We can do these things. We're a wealthy city here in Seattle. See, that seems like common sense. That's right. But now common sense doesn't even exist with our politicians. They're doing the exact opposite. So I I think you're right on with your assessment. If we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to the point where we've reached a billion dollars already. That's right. And we're devolving even further. Please help me understand (laughs) how do you keep doing the same thing twice? Yeah. Right? That's right. That's right. Uh, Seattle's almost become a beacon for I'm uh, really homeless. Right. It's been a, well, yeah. I'll I'm really, really nervous about us moving forward. That's why we need some some, yeah. some leaders ready to step up and yeah. take on the mob and take on this this gross activism that's swallowing us all. Absolutely. Well, hey, I, I'm just a, a common sense, you know, concerned citizen. There you go. That's I all like I, it. That's all I am. And any of your viewers, I'd love to talk to them if they have some common sense solutions. We put our heads together and start coming up with something. Absolutely. That would be wonderful. Mike, you mentioned a couple of times in your podcast, I've seen uh, the word doxed. I don't know what that means. So what does that mean? Yeah, doxed is when somebody gets your personal information and spreads it on the internet Ah. to hurt you, either personally or financially, and to intimidate you. Okay. To the point where... You know, I'm not even an elected official. I'm just a police officer elected by the police officers in this yeah. union. Yeah. The mob was at my door. Yes. I, I read I mean, about So that. it's like, what, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Do you really think that I'm going to back down? No, not a chance, nor is my family. Right. But right. I'm not a victim. Right. And I don't think Seattle needs to be a victim. Right. And then you're leading the charge. Yeah. And I, again, I respect the hell out of you. Mm. Um. I think you've got a wealth of experience. Yeah. yeah. But more importantly, we talked about this earlier. You got to drive. I Your do. drive is to create positivity mm-hmm. amongst individuals. Yeah. To fulfill your life, to celebrate life. That's right. That's right. But your drive is to improve and keep this city vibrant mm-hmm. and viable and respected yeah. across the world. That's right. We can do it. I, I thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, I think Mike. you've been fan- yeah. you've been fantastic, and uh, yeah. I, I I can consider you a friend. Well, thank you. Same here. Same here. It's a real pleasure to meet you this summer and come on this this time. Um, there's a lot of work to do ahead of us, and uh, I want to get out there and just try to find more and more good people willing to roll up their sleeves and get to work, and not be afraid of, you know, the the pushback, uh, all the negativity. We're doing the right thing. Stand up to bullies. That's right. We have to. I think in the end, good will win. You know, doing the right thing will win. It's a long push. It's a long struggle. But we can get there. James Donaldson, I wish you the best in whatever you you. plan on doing in the future. Thank you. I think you're a fantastic human being, and you're you're a great representation of the Seattle community. Mm -hmm. Thank Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Mike. Good to see you.